Today's Bible reading is from Exodus uh, chapter 6.10 to chapter 7.13. We rejoin the story with Moses feeling deeply discouraged by the suffering of his people, the Israelites. Early in this passage, there is a genealogy that can be a little tricky to make sense of. So we'll have that come up on the screen as we read through, through it to help us picture it more clearly. And before we then read of Moses and Aaron returning to speak God's word to Pharaoh. So from 6.10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, Well, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why should Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Now, the Lord had had spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanok and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jamul, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. Now these were the names of the sons of Levi according to their records. Gershon, Koath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. And the sons of Gershom, by clans, were Libni and Shimei. The sons of Koath were Amron, Isra, Hebron, and Uzil. And Koath lived 133 years. And the sons of Merari were Mahli, Mali, and Mushai. These were the clans of Levi, according to their records. Amran married his father's sister, Jochebed, who bore a, him a Aaron and Moses. And Amran lived 137 years. The sons of Izar were Korah, Nephek, and Zikri. The sons of Uzil were Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elishabah, daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab and Abinu, Elysia and Ithamar. The sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah and Abiasas, whatever. Uh, these, these were the Korite clans. Now, Elisa... Uh, Elizar was the son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putil, and she bore him Phineas. Now these were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. Now it was this 
Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, this same Moses and Aaron. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Moses listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you. And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. And Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's snake, staff rather, swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Well, thank you, Val. I think we'd all agree that that's worth a round of applause. It's a a fair effort. Uh, You've got a feel for Moses too, don't you? Um, If you can remember from last week, he's just spent time talking to the Israelites about what God is, has got in store for them in the midst of their discouragement. Uh, they didn't listen to him. And here God says, well, just, just keep going. Keep going. But I think Moses can see what lies ahead. And I've got a question for you, for us to reflect on as we try and engage with this passage. And let's be honest, a genealogy that just feels a little bit sort of hard to get our heads around. I want to ask you, how do you feel about rejection? How do you feel about rejection? 
Now, there might be a few amongst us who are totally fine with it. We're not too bothered what other people think about us. It's no big deal. If someone declines our invitation or disagrees with us or speaks out against us, there might be some of us who are okay with that. But I reckon most of us are pretty terrified of it. Rejection? No, thank you. It's not nice. It's not good. Actually, it's something I'm pretty keen to avoid. And if that's where you're at, well, you're in good company because I reckon that's about where Moses stood when he came to God with his concerns at the start of our reading today. As I said, we're picking up the story where Moses is already really discouraged. He's experienced the first round of rejection. His own people have rejected his message and he doesn't want to walk straight into round two. The Israelites are suffering under the oppression of Pharaoh. God has offered wonderful words of assurance that we reflected on together last week. But then in verse 9, when Moses reported this to the Israelites, they didn't listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labour. They just didn't listen. And so rejected and dejected, Moses comes back to God who is sending him on to Pharaoh, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And yet it's clear, at the start of our reading, chapter 6, verse 12, And Moses doesn't want to face another round of rejection, does he? And who can blame him? Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites won't listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? I've already been rejected by the guys that were supposed to be listening to me, that I'm supposed to be helping. If they've not listened, then why on earth would Pharaoh listen to me? I hope we can kind of start to capture some of the the anxiety and the concern of Moses behind this question. Because I suspect, if we're honest, I think we'd all be there right beside him. Rejection? (laughs) No thanks. Not if I can help it. And yet, by the end of our reading, something remarkable has happened, right? Because discouraged, anxious, insecure Moses has stepped up. Chapter 7, verse 6, Moses and Aaron did exactly as the Lord had commanded them. They stepped up. So we should be asking, what has changed? Well, I think as we look together at this passage, we'll see the profound impact that it has to know that the holy God knows the human heart. He knows your heart and mine, but he also knows his people's heart and he knows Pharaoh's heart, the heart of all who are opposed to him, the heart of all that he will or will not soften towards him. And something about that has a massive impact on Moses. But before we get to that, we hit pause, don't we? We hit pause and we go to a long genealogy full of names that Val did such a great job with. Now, I don't know about you, you might be kind of a genealogy junkie. You love getting on Ancestry.com and finding out all sorts of quirky connections about your family here and there. Incidentally, and it really was just incidental, that that this week, uh, for grade two, show and tell, my son Jay was tasked with sharing about his ancestry. So I went digging And I can show you a picture of the ship that set sail from Bristol in England in 1841, bound for Port Phillip, carrying Jay's great-great-great-great-grandfather on his father's grandmother's side. Or I can show you a picture of Jay's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather on his mother's father's side, who in 1840 settled in the foothills of the Adelaide Hills, called his property Burnside, and the name stuck. 
So, you might find your own genealogy interesting. But let's be honest. Following them in the Bible can be a little bit of a challenge. And so often I think we find ourselves thinking, well, so what? Well, the so what of this one speaks into Moses' fear of rejection. You see, remember, we're in the midst of Moses' conversation with God. is dealing with the discouragement in the face of God's repeated instruction to go and speak to Pharaoh. No, thank you. And the action pauses so that we as future readers, generations of the Israelites, and now us, thousands of years later, reading this story, we can see how all of this fits into the context of Moses' family tree. But why? Well, really briefly, to highlight a few things for us. As we saw, the family tree begins with the sons of Israel, also known as Jacob, as in Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We know from earlier in the Bible that Jacob had 12 sons, but we only get the first three, the oldest three, don't we? Because we get to Levi and that's the family line that this genealogy is interested in. And actually, it's only really interested in Levi's son, Kohath. Because from there, we descend down through to see where Aaron and Moses fit. And whilst Moses has been the hero of the story of Exodus so far, well, this genealogy, it actually puts Moses to one side and it follows Aaron through to his grandson, Phinehas. Now, for the eagle-eyed of us, along the way, we might have realised that actually we had this sort of slightly odd side note where we heard about uh, Aaron's uncle Izhar and his cousin Korah. And he's highlighted because in the way that these genealogies work, it's Korah who, who we actually hear about his, his son's names in a way that we don't about most of the other people on the page. And we should wonder why, because it all matters for the so what. See, Moses feared rejection and he asked God, why should Pharaoh listen to me? God had already told him back in chapter 4 that God is sending Moses with his brother Aaron to help as his spokesman. And here we've got Aaron's family tree. And there are three things to notice. First, there is actually nothing special about Moses and Aaron. They are just two of many descendants of Levi, the third son of Jacob. Nothing special, just chosen by God to play a role in his amazing work of rescuing people. Secondly, Aaron has been privileged to represent God to the world in a way that is then passed down to his descendants. Because we might not recognise Eleazar or Phineas as anyone special to us, but for those Israelites reading this in the generations to follow, they'll they'll know that, oh yeah, Eleazar was the great high priest who inherited the priestly responsibilities from his father Aaron. And Phineas was the priest at the time when Israel was being led astray into idolatry with the neighbouring nations and Phineas, in his zeal, took action to defend the glory of God. Phineas was the priest who went with Joshua, leading the people across the Jordan into the promised land. These These are great heroes of the faith, the first generations of the priestly line that descends from Aaron. But the third thing to note from this genealogy is that those Israelites reading will have also recognised Korah's name when it came up. Because a few years later, and if we read on from Exodus, Leviticus, into Numbers, we would actually read that just a few years later, as they're wandering through the wilderness, Korah raised a rebellion against their leadership, against Moses and Aaron, and in particular, the kind of the priestly responsibilities that Aaron had. And yet here we see Korah, he's a cousin, he's part of the family right there beside them on the family tree. 
So what do we learn from this little pause in the conversation between Moses and God? Well, who are these men, Moses and his spokesman brother Aaron? Who are they? First, they're no one special, just men that God has called to a task. And second, while they're no one special, God has, as as he can do, he's called them to a very particular role, which is affirmed by that ongoing priestly responsibility through Aaron's descendants. And third, you know, the rejection that they feared from Pharaoh, that's not going to be the last opposition that they face even from within their own people, even from within their own family. Questions and accusations will be raised about the legitimacy of them being God's representatives to his people. So we get to the end of the genealogy, we we hit play again, we're picking up again on the conversation with God and Moses. We've got exactly the same question in uh, chapter 6 verse 28 as where we hit pause in chapter uh, 6 verse 12. Moses saying, since I speak with faltering lips... Why would Pharaoh listen to me? Well, after the pause, we finally hear God's answer in chapter 7. And it was pretty blunt, wasn't it? Yes, you and your brother, you are my voice to Pharaoh. But chapter 7, verse 4, he will not listen. Why would Pharaoh listen to me? Oh, he won't. (laughs) Great encouragement. But it's not actually the end, is it? Because just as God has been trying to teach Moses since he met him at the burning bush in chapter 4, it's not actually about Moses in the first place. God will still fulfill his promises. Pharaoh won't listen to you, but really that's not because it's actually about you. It's me, says God, that Pharaoh isn't listening to. It's me that he is rejecting. But you don't need to fear rejection because I am with you. You don't need to fear rejection because I will rescue my people. And finally, it's enough for Moses. In his discouragement, finally, this is enough to overcome Moses' ongoing fear of rejection. Now, verse 6, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded them. As we said before, they stepped up. But I don't think it's because they suddenly realised, oh yeah, we are superstars. It's not because they've suddenly, you know, they've spent enough time at Toastmasters refining their public speaking skills that, okay, we're ready to go speak to Pharaoh. But because they'd heard God's promises and they responded in faith. Bringing their life under the reality of who God is and what he has promised. Why would Pharaoh listen to me, asked Moses. He won't, replied God. But I'll still fulfill my promises. And then we have the account of the sign that sums it up. Uh, Moses and Aaron returning to Pharaoh and verse 10 says that they did just as what the Lord commanded, which means that they have told Pharaoh God's word, let my people go. And then God anticipated that Pharaoh would want a sign to back it up. We've read in chapter 5 that, that Pharaoh told Moses that he did not know this foreign God and so he would not listen to him. So I think when... Uh, Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh and the sign is asked. We can be open-minded about what this request might mean from Pharaoh. This could be a national leader doing kind of due diligence. If you want to take my slave labour force, well, you better show that you've got a legitimate claim. That's fair enough. Or maybe he was just bored and wanted to see something kind of interesting. Or actually, more likely, as the story unfolds, 
This is the next step in Pharaoh's ongoing opposition to God. Let this people go. No way. I am not interested in listening and you're going to have to fight for my attention. But whatever might have been going on in Pharaoh's head, well, God is kind and and he actually comes to the party. This is an exercise of grace on God's part. Aaron throws down the staff and, and it becomes a snake. It's an act of God's grace on God's part because it's an opportunity for Pharaoh to to soften, to change tack, to listen, to respond, to think, oh, maybe there is something legitimate going on here. But instead, no, Pharaoh copies the sign, getting his dark arts practitioners to conjure up the snakes. For what it's worth, I don't think Pharaoh's magicians are just kind of sleight of hand, fancy card trick kind of guys. I think we've got a genuine spiritual battle that God is giving us an insight into here. Evil forces engaging in a genuine contest with God. Because it shows that Pharaoh is contesting for power. I see your snake, I raise it with more. He's he's contesting the claim of this intruder God over his patch. After all, this is Yahweh, the God of Israel. No, 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 this isn't Pharaoh just brushing aside Moses and Aaron. This is Pharaoh in contest with their God. As Matt pointed out to the kids, well, God makes the contest clear. There is no contest. Verse 12, in the face of seemingly overwhelming odds, because there's multiple snakes, Aaron's staff swallows them all. And surely that should be enough to settle the debate. I want to see a miracle, Pharaoh says. It's all laid down in front of him. That should settle the debate. And yet we see the ongoing cascade of Pharaoh's rejection In verse 13, Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them. And as the scene closes, the big idea behind all of this is underlined for us in a few simple words, just as the Lord had said. Because the holy God knows the human heart. He knew Moses' heart. Moses' heart that feared rejection, that felt so insecure and inadequate. He he knew Moses' heart and he accommodated for it. He was gracious with it. He wasn't overbearing. He, he, He provided the promises through which he would bring Moses to a changed position. And he knew Pharaoh's heart. The heart that was hard and proud and willful the heart that viewed the world through the lens of his own self-importance. I mean, we might be confronted in chapter 6, verse 3, to read those words that God said that, that he would harden Pharaoh's heart, but let's remember who we're talking about. We've already seen in the last two chapters that Pharaoh is already proud. He is willful. He is violent and oppressive. In the chapters to follow, we see Pharaoh further harden his own heart long before God eventually intervenes to do the same. And so this sign of, of the snakes and the snakes and the snake that swallows the snakes, it's, it's summing up the story so far. It's pointing us in the direction of where things are headed. It was never meant to be about whether Pharaoh would listen to Moses because he's not rejecting Moses so much as the God that Moses represented. And God knew that Pharaoh would not listen, but that did not diminish God's power to fulfill his promises. And I think Moses and Aaron, they've finally got it. They've done exactly as God commanded. They've worked out, yeah, they are just ordinary men, commissioned by an extraordinary God. And they don't need to fear rejection from others, even the most powerful man in the land, in the known world. 
For they know that they are known and loved by the only one who really matters. So what does it all say to us? Well, I think it teaches us a lot about God, that he knows the human heart, both the hearts of his inadequate representatives and the hearts of those who would be opposed to him. But it doesn't stop him fulfilling his promises. It actually teaches us that God is upfront about opposition. It's highlighting for us that, that God knows, in fact, God wants to show that his rule will be opposed, but that's not a reason to stop talking about it. In the end, I think we see this most clearly in Jesus. You know, for all of the rejection that Moses faced, Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh, talking with their own people, the rebellion of Korah that would come, is Jesus as the ultimate mediator of God's presence with his people. It is Jesus who will face the ultimate rejection, isn't it? Jesus knows that rejection and Jesus stands with those who stand with him. As I was reflecting on this this week in particular, there are two passages in the book of Acts in the New Testament that came to mind. Um, The first from Acts chapter 9, I love the way that we see how Jesus stands with, with his people in the face of rejection. When we read of the story of the Pharisee Saul, who was a conservative religious zealot of the Jewish leaders, and he was out there to get the early Christians convinced that they were a heretical offshoot. Saul was a little bit like Korah in the family tree, a member of the extended family who who should have had Jesus back, but instead he hated bitterly Jesus' claim to mediate between God and humanity. So Saul was on his way to the city of Damascus to round up those Christians, to try and convince them to to walk away from their faith or even to imprison and and, and kill them if they didn't. And in Acts chapter 9, we read Jesus' words to him where Jesus appears to him after his resurrection and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He doesn't say, Saul, why do you persecute Christians? Why do you persecute my disciples? Why do you persecute me because Jesus stands with his people he loves his people he's so united with those who trust in him that that he's right there with them in their rejection never leaving them alone and Saul's rejection of those Christians was ultimately a rejection of Jesus and even though Saul rejected them they knew They were known and loved by the only one who really matters, the Lord Jesus, with them in it all. So what are we learning from Exodus 6 and 7? Well, we're learning that it's all about God, not us. Moses asked, why would Pharaoh listen to me? But God's answer was so helpfully blunt. Well, he won't. (laughs) But that doesn't make it pointless or even hopeless. God will speak and fulfill his promises anyway. And so two brief thoughts to close then in light of that. Because Jesus sends his people out to to speak to our neighbours and our friends and our family about him. And whether we're reflecting on what we've read in Exodus or all the way through the New Testament, the truth is that we should expect rejection too. I think we are often so cautious in speaking about Jesus because we fear rejection. What if they brush me off? But even worse, what if they hate me for it? This relationship that I've nurtured, what if if it all just explodes? 
And perhaps we might need to hear God's honest reply to Moses. They won't listen to you. But it's not really you that they are rejecting. It's me, says God. You are so precious to me, says God, that I will never reject you, regardless of what others say. In the face of the sneering or just turning down the invite, rest assured that you are loved by the holy God who knows your heart and theirs. Now, to be clear, I stand here preaching this sermon and it would be very easy to give the false impression that that I'm not phased by this at all. I'm just full of gumption and enthusiasm and I'm out there having, you know, bold conversations left, right and centre. It's sadly miles from the truth. But because of that, I am so thankful that God knows the truth about my heart, just as he knows yours. Because he also knows the hearts of those we speak to and who will respond and who will not, even when we don't. And he sends us to speak regardless. I think that's really helpful for us to have as you picture your week ahead. Is it, the, is it going to work tomorrow? Or is, it, is it rocking up at school on Tuesday? Or is it meeting with the mums group on Wednesday? Whatever your context might be in this week to come. At one level, the blunt encouragement of Exodus 6 and 7 is that if you are to speak of Jesus, you, you ought to expect rejection. But speak anyway. Invite people to come along to church. If you think it's worth your being on a Sunday morning, you might want to share that with them. Invite them to come hiking with us at Belair in September, the opportunity to meet some of your Christian family and friends. Invite them to come and hear what Christians believe in our Taste and See course, gospel course in November. But let's learn to be okay with rejection, not to take it personally. If they say, let me think, no, definitely busy that day. Yep, haven't looked at my diary, but I know I'm busy. Because it's not actually about you and me anyway. But secondly, let's also remember that God will still fulfil his promises today, just as he did in Exodus. I was so encouraged by the time that we spent in Acts chapter 17 with Craig Broman a couple of weeks ago. If you missed it, um, get it off the website. Even better, stick around for Craig's seminar this afternoon. Because I love the conclusion of that passage where the Apostle Paul, he's been preaching in Athens to a pretty hostile crowd and we see three possible responses. We read that when they, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. So some sneered. They really did, like Pharaoh. I don't know the Lord, and I will not listen. What a ridiculous thing to say. Do you honestly believe that? I can't believe that you think that way. Yeah, some sneered. But others said, I'd like to hear some more. I'd like to hear some more on this. And then at some point, perhaps then and there, we don't know, perhaps it was later after those further conversations, Some of the people believed and became followers because God is powerful to fulfil his promises. God promises that he loves us and he will be with us, come what may. He promises that he will gather people around his son and he promises that no one is beyond the reach of the gospel. Because after all, if you think about it, that Apostle Paul preaching in Athens was the very same Saul before he met Jesus 
out there to lynch Christians. And no one is beyond the power of God to fulfill his promises. Friends, I think it's the really wonderful news that the holy God knows the human heart. He knows ours, our fears, our apprehensions, and he loves us through it all. And he knows the hard hearts of those who will reject him, as well as the hard hearts that he will soften, that they might turn, that they might put their faith in Jesus and join us in glorifying him forever. So let's pray to this holy God. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your patience and gentleness with your servant Moses. That though he was so painfully aware of his own inadequacies, so upfront with you about his own insecurities, uh, yet you gradually kept showing him more of yourself that he might know that you are the good and faithful God who will fulfil your promises and never leave nor forsake your people. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who faced the ultimate rejection that through faith in him we might actually have our sins forgiven and new life with you. And so, Father, we pray that you would build in us a deep confidence that you are with us come what may, that you give us the great privilege of being your spokespeople, the ones that Jesus has sent into this world, uh, helping others get curious about him, ask their questions about him, see that he is the answer to their great desires in life. Father, you know our fears, that we fear rejection. Please give us a courage that comes from knowing who you are, what you are doing, and your presence with us through it all. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.